0: Hello, I'm David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics.
1: So, so Trump went big style on the woman who gained weight after she won. Oh, yeah, okay, sorry, okay, i yeah. sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, sorry, okay, sorry okay. I'm joined this week by some members of
0: our regular panel, Helen Thompson, Finbar Livesey, Aaron Rapport, and Glenn Rangwala. Save it. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah. Don't use up all the best. words. <laughs> <laughs> Once you say line it can't be used. used No, it can. We haven't sat around this table to discuss politics for a while. I think, Glenn, the last time was you and me, I think it was about three months ago, talking about the Chilcot Report. As you rightly said at the time, this will seem like a passing moment in the cavalcade of other things that are going on. Three months is a long time. 24 hours these days is quite a long time in politics. And we're a little more than 24 hours after the first presidential debate. I stayed up to watch it in real time. I tried to, in fact, I did not look at Twitter, ignore any commentary that was going on around it. I tried to have the unvarnished experience of just watching it, which was quite hard work. 90 minutes is a long time in politics when you're watching those two take each other on. At the end, even before the end, maybe 20 minutes from the end, I was overwhelmed by the feeling that this was very bad for Donald Trump. And there were moments where you you felt that this was going to be a car crash. Not long after it had finished, I started to doubt that. It didn't take long. And then I started to feel, really, what was so bad about that? I can't. In the moment, it was excruciating. I then turned the sound on to the commentary that was going on around it and found people saying exactly the same thing. The NBC seasoned analyst was saying, well, to me, that looked terrible for Trump, but I don't trust my judgment anymore because I'm not sure what people are seeing when they see these things. If the old rules still apply, that was bad for Trump but I'm sure we'll be talking about this a lot on this podcast. Do the old rules still apply? Erin. Do the old rules still apply? And if so, which ones still apply to that debate?
2: Well, the old rules, at least as far as I'm concerned, is that at this point in the campaign season, which, as we know, has been going on for approximately six years now, debates don't sway that many people. Most people have kind of baked in their preferences for either Clinton or Trump at this point. Now, as far as undecided voters were concerned, and you can question how scientific this is, but organizations like CNN, um, Frank Lutz, who's a Republican pollster and others, had Focus groups of undecided voters watching the debates. And these focus groups tended, on average, to go about three to one towards Clinton in terms of saying who won the debate. That, of course, assumes that perceiving somebody won a debate affects your preferences for voting for them, which actually is a little bit of a stretch in logic. So again, my normal inclination is to say that this late in the game, debates shouldn't matter that much. I myself did not watch the entire debate. I said I'd rather be kicked in the head by a donkey or some sort of domesticated hooved mammal. But if, if anything, so far, the reaction seems to be that Clinton won. And that might be reinforced by the fact that you've had a couple of newspaper outlets like the Cincinnati Inquirer and uh, the Arizona Republic, which literally haven't endorsed a Democratic candidate in decades, if not a century, who have endorsed Clinton over Trump. So Fimba, did you have that feeling? Because this anxiety about whether the
0: old rules still hold is partly driven by a sense that almost everyone who comments on this, people who write newspaper Pieces endorsing one or other candidate, they belong to a group, college educated, they hang out in urban environments, they tend to meet each other in social settings, and there's this fear that there's another America out there and they have lost touch with how that other America is responding to Trump. Is that fear real? Because we could overdo it as well. us sort of pointy heads in our ivory towers, we could feel that we no longer know what anyone thinks, but maybe we do.
1: I think it is overdone. I think um, when you look at a lot of the polling around who is supporting Trump, the initial stories are that these are the uneducated, the people who have been dispossessed. There are a lot of people who have had a very tough run in life and who have been left behind in many ways by the economic changes that have happened in America. And a lot of those people are voting for Trump. But a lot of people who are college educated and across all of the racial divides are voting for Trump. So it's not a very simplistic, you know, the people who didn't vote before are turning out to vote. So it changes the rules or the people who are in a different set of narrow cast media outlets are voting and it changes the rules. I think what genuinely has happened is Trump is unlike any other candidate and has made it like reality TV. And so there is a different engagement mode for a lot of people. And as they watch this process unfold, they're thinking about giving somebody their vote to stay on the island or to stay on the show rather than to run the most powerful country in the world.
0: Although that's exactly the kind of thing that they would hate to hear people like us saying about them. They may not be listening. Helen... There is an old rule, or I guess it's an adage in politics. And I did think about this again, as I was struggling after the debate to remember what it was that had made me so uncomfortable about Trump, which is that in politics, something beats nothing. And I'm not saying Hillary Clinton is nothing. She's a very smart, experienced, as Trump said, bad experienced politician. But when it was over, if you asked yourself, so having seen her for half of a 90 minute debate, what is her thing? Why does she want to be president? What's the big idea? I I mean, the big idea is that she's not Donald Trump. But beyond that, I really was struggling. I know exactly what Trump is. And I could say what the big idea is. The big idea is he wants to keep foreigners out. And then he wants to bring things back that foreigners have taken from the United States, jobs and money, and maybe even power. Is that a reasonable cause for doubt on the Clinton side that maybe people would take from that debate? I know what Trump is. I still don't know what she is, except she's a politician.
3: There's a lot to be said for what you've just said. I think, though, that we ought to bear in mind as well that um, from Trump's point of view, and this will come back to Hillary in a moment, is that the whole thing wasn't a disaster. The second two thirds of it was pretty disastrous from his point of view. But the first third of it, he was quite effective in terms of jabbing at places that hurt Hillary for the very reason that you have just um, said. And we should say,
0: so I stuck it out, but I felt I was obliged to it out. I think if I hadn't been obliged, I might have turned off after half an hour. (laughs) And others presumably did that too. No,
1: the Nielsen ratings didn't show a drop off. Okay. Well,
0: you go see, I don't understand what people out there are doing.
3: (laughs) So, and the reason why he had a reasonably successful first third was because he um, pushed on the line of what have you been doing for 30 years? and that is a serious argument to put to Hillary Clinton and and it also she had a problem even though he wasn't able to exploit it at all because he didn't take the openings that were there from various mistakes i think that she made in the in the second two thirds of saying if everything is as as you say it is and you want to run essentially for th- Barack Obama's the term, though, of course, she's too egotistic to quite put it um, in those terms. How is it within the current political situation, the current economic situation, that you, Hillary Clinton, are going to be able to create millions of new jobs? And the question... That comes back from that is, is, well, if it's possible for Hillary Clinton to do this, why isn't it possible in the economic and political context of our times for Barack Obama to have done this if there isn't supposed to be any significant discontinuity between Clinton and Obama? And I think that her weakness in this is, is that a lot of what she says actually is accurate, but it sounds kind of fake. It sounds like it doesn't really connect to the reality of the times in which we live, whereas a lot of what he says is inaccurate. In fact, some of it's downright lies. But actually, there are one or two moments where he catches something that is true about the times in which we live. And there was a throwaway line where he said, well, I suppose he didn't think it was a throwaway line, but he kind of gobbled it out about us living in a, a fat ugly bubble, I think was the, the phrase that he used and that the that the Fed was propping the economy up and as soon as there was a rise in interest rates, it was all gonna come crashing down. That was more truthful about the economy than anything else that was said. But He can't turn it into a sustained critique because he doesn't have the self-discipline in order to do it. But that is, I think, her weakness in the sense that she doesn't actually have anything that's meaningful to say about the particular problems that Americans are experiencing. She comes over as explaining those problems in a rather abstract way.
0: There was a good piece written about Trump, someone who went to hear him speak, and it said, the way to think about Donald Trump is his supporters don't take him literally, they take him seriously. And I thought that was a yeah. kind of interesting, and it chimed with what you've just said. So Glenn, you probably, I think this is an unusual response to the debate, you read the transcript rather than watching it. So we hear all the time, social psychologists and political analysts always talk about how important it is not just to think about the words, but to think about how they come across, the body language, and so on. So you just had the words, how did they come across on the page?
4: So what it appeared to me was that both candidates were pulling their punches slightly when it came to the debate. And I wonder if that is because this is the first of three debates. They want to create a narrative for themselves between the three debates, whereby they bring up different things in, in the second and third debates, which which go beyond, which get more aggressive, which are more confrontational than we heard in the first debate. And in that sense, uh, although undoubtedly, I think it's right to say that Trump wasn't as quick on his feet as he could have been. I also wonder if he was saving some of his stronger accusations for the later
0: ones. So he can be the comeback kid. Exactly. One thing that I was very struck by and the bits that were excruciating were when he kind of went down these sort of rabbit warrens of his mind on the Bertha question when he started going on about Sidney Blumenthal, so there's a project in Cambridge studying conspiracy theories. And a couple of days ago, I was talking to one of the researchers on that project and saying, you should write an article about Sidney Blumenthal because he's appearing around the fringes of this birth argument and he's got an interesting backstory. But we agreed it was a bit niche. But it wasn't too niche for Donald Trump, who devoted about four or five minutes to it. And it's that weird thing. It's not... In, he, he kept bringing up the names of people that almost everyone watching wouldn't know who these people were. They were sort of inside politics names, but it's not inside Beltway stuff. It's kind of inside his head stuff. He's talking to himself. Or that's how it seemed seeing it in real time. Is that how it came across on the page? Certainly. There was that long section where he just kept referring
4: to Sean Hannity at Fox News. He mentioned the name seven times in the space of about two minutes.
0: Yeah. Um, And Sean Hannity is a well-known figure, but it was seven times. (laughs) (laughs) But it it was that
4: sense to which he was just unable to move off that topic. He He was stuck on it and just wanted to keep saying it in the belief that that would convey the force of his conviction. And again, it's not the truth. It's the force of the expression. And, and there that were moments
0: down, because the, and we'll come on to the moderator in a second, but Lester Holt, the moderator, didn't intervene a lot. And there were moments where you thought, if, so, if no one intervenes here, this could go on forever, because he's swirling round and round and round. Again, watching it in real time, trying to be dispassionate, if that's possible. And after all, I don't have a vote. But about two thirds of the way through, the other thing I was very struck by was I thought, this looks very skewed in the way it's being moderated. This is very anti-Trump. Um, It just did seem slanted in in the way that the moderator questioned him, the things that he brought up that Trump had said in the past, even the sequencing of the questions. And I just got that impression without any prior judgment, not really knowing much about the moderator. And it does seem to have been picked up, Helen. Subsequently, it's become Trump's response to the debate.
3: I thought the moderating was quite staggering. And I think that the Bertha question was a good example of that because of the fact that, the Lester Holt is his name He at the beginning he set out what the debate was going to be was how going to have these three sections and there isn't any way in which you could see how birth, the Bertha issue was going to fit into any of these sections and yet it appeared there was no questioning from um, Lester Holt to Hillary about her emails I think that it will feed Trump's you know narrative that the mainstream media is against him I think though at the same time that there were so many ways in which the problems that he brought about were self-inflicted that it will be harder for him to push that narrative successfully with those voters whom he needs to appeal to than would be the case if he'd put in a better performance in the second two-thirds of the debate. And I I think one thing that really struck me in that was uh, there must have been just huge intakes of breath from the many Conservatives who were swallowing all bits of pride to vote for him on the subject of gun control, because his position was indistinguishable from Hillary. He was riding shot over things that are sacrosanct to Second Amendment conservatives. And I think he would have done himself some significant damage with the conservative vote. There was absolutely nothing remotely conservative about anything.
2: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
3: $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. He said all night.
0: I want to come on to that in a second. I just want to have one more take on the moderator question, because my feeling about it is that it's a sign of the way he's just discombobulated the mainstream media, because what it looked like was an overreaction to the previous encounter between Trump, Hillary and Matt Lauer, where Lauer was hammered in the press for giving Trump too easy a ride, because whatever else Lauer was trying to do, he was clearly trying not to prejudge how people view Trump this overcompensated the other way they, they're blowing too hot they're blowing too cold I mean I'm taking it not that this is evidence of bias Aaron but it's evidence of the fact that Trump has kind of left them floundering and not knowing what the old rules are
2: anymore I think that's right. And a good example of that, actually, in regards to the the so-called birther issue is very recently, the New York Times ran a front page article, which was a news analysis story, as as they call it, on Trump's press conference, uh, which he said, you know, he'd kind of put the end to the birther talk and Hillary Clinton start both, you know, lies. But the New York Times on its front page said just what I just said, and I'm editorializing, but they were editorializing, right? They, they, said, said, this, they said this is a lie, right? This, it wasn't true when Trump first brought it up. It's not true now, right? And this is a major break in a journalistic norm by the United States paper of note on its front page. In some ways, I'm not very sympathetic to Trump. Actually, in most ways, I'm not very sympathetic to Trump, but especially in this way, because uh, unlike Hillary Clinton and her emails, where this is an issue that past administrations, the Bush administration, George W. Bush, that is, had in terms of millions of emails also being deleted. Hillary Clinton's, for for obvious reasons, not been trying to ride this as an issue, whereas Trump had ridden the birthright issue and then purposely called attention to it himself, right? So you think of it in terms of a court of law, right? Once you introduce something as a selling point for yourself as a candidate and then try to, you know, cover it up, uh, it seems to me fair game to go after. But yes, I would agree that the way that Trump has behaved and the criticism that the media has got, has made it so that a lot of reporters are just very flustered. And moderators, I think, are kind of in a state of flux in terms of what they think is inappropriate and appropriate behavior. And
0: again, as Glenn was saying, we've got more debates to come, and it could just keep fluctuating back and forth. They blow too hot, they blow too cold, they blow too hot again. We'll have to see. So I want to raise one more question coming out of what Helen said for Glenn and Finbar and others, which is his relationship to the Republican Party. Because Again, watching that debate in real time, one thing that didn't come across at any point was that you were watching the Republican candidate. Hillary was the Democratic candidate. She was tying herself to the Obama administration. She tied herself to her husband's administration. That came up quite a lot. There was no, unless I missed it, there was no moment where if you were a Martian watching it from outer space, you would have known that Trump was standing as anyone other than just Donald Trump. It's an extraordinary thing, Finbar.
1: It's bizarre. And you're seeing bits of the Republican Party sell their soul. And there is going to be a reckoning of sorts within the party, either because he loses and then they have to try and sort themselves back out again, or he wins. And they have to then... Then the devil comes to take the price. They have to then say, "Okay, we are now going to follow the line and we're going to be here with President Trump. So I, I find it really difficult because, you know, Ted Cruz, having gone to the convention and stood up and said, you know, I finally have found my conscience... And there was a great article, which basically was his discussion with his conscience as his conscience left the building again after he then came in and said, I'm going to support Trump. You had Giuliani after debate in the spin room. And it's like you're living in an alternative reality. You're talking about something that didn't happen in the debate about a candidate who isn't a real Republican, if you want to use that phrase. What are you doing? You're killing your party. And so I'm fascinated to see whether or not the Republican Party can survive over the next four to eight years in this format or whether it fractures because of this. Well, this is what makes it so interesting
4: because if Trump does even moderately well in the election, then it throws up the question of what parties are for, what's campaign finance for, what are all the old traditional staples around which politicians organised. Um, if, if, they're, if they're left without a purpose um, in the election campaign, then, then who needs them? And that does change the rules for, for the
0: future if that's, if that's the outcome. And yet, Helen, if you were the same Martian and you didn't watch the debate, but you looked at the map, the electoral map, you would think very little had change because the electoral college map, which, as we know, is state by state, the, a few states are sort of fluctuating now between red and blue. States like Georgia may be moving, possibly, although it looks like Georgia will vote for Trump. But most of them are exactly where they've been for the last 20, 30 years. The red states are red, the blue states are blue. And we're told this is a unique election, never seen anything like it. You wouldn't know it from the Electoral College map, would you?
3: No, that's absolutely right. And... uh Clearly the the same crucial states as for the last four elections essentially are going to determine what happens in in this election and therefore on the surface not a great deal um, has changed. I do think there's one thing that we haven't discussed though that is important and this is something that is a huge change but what the consequences of it are that we don't know and that is, is that to all intents and purposes the Republican candidate for the American presidency isn't actually trying. He has a skeletal organisation, both at the national level and at the state level. It looks like they're going to spend 100000000 million-odd in ads this month, but over the summer, hardly any money has been spent on ads. They've not been doing advertising, including in, in, in swing states. It's simply the campaign, in a traditional sense, is simply non-existent. Now, we can say that he won the Republican nomination in the same way. He spent incredibly little money to win the Republican nomination. But I do think that there's a difference, and that is, in that case, that you don't necessarily win by winning the absolute most votes. that's Winning the votes is just a means to an end. What you're trying actually you to do is to get your opponents to drop out. And you can get your opponents to drop out in a number of ways, one of which is by winning votes, but it's not the only way you can make their donors doubt them. When you get to the general election, though, the other candidate isn't going to drop out. The only way to win... Well,
0: unless she, sort of something yeah. happens to her, but yes. Is,
3: going, is, ...is to win the absolute most votes. And to do that, all conventional, all the past tells us that you need a campaign infrastructure... So it's really I think a big jump to get from he could not run a conventional campaign and have a campaign infrastructure to win the Republican nomination till you can do the same thing and win the presidency. If he can win the presidency this way... Then
0: the old rules do not apply. No,
3: the really old rules do not apply. But we are not in that ballgame yet because this is a really big question that nobody knows what the answer to is.
1: But just, but just to bookend that one of the reasons for Ted Cruz and Giuliani and all these other Republicans to do what they're doing is because they actually think he is going to win. One more thing about Trump and then I want to move on
0: briefly to talk about domestically, the big story of the week, which is Jeremy Corbyn's re-election as leader of the Labour Party. And I think the connection is this, which is Trump's relationship with the Republican Party is very weird and tangential and in some respects non-existent. He's a recognisable type of politician. The politician, you know, the, the wild accusations are Hitler and whatever, but really it's Berlusconi it's politi- and his great buddy Putin. Those kinds of populist politicians tend to create new parties around them. Um, that They build up a movement. And even someone like Beppe Grillo in, in Italy. Lots of new parties are being formed with these, if the word is right, charismatic leaders. But Trump has done the other thing, which is to take over an established party. So that, that's very different. And I mean, that, that's the strain of this relationship. In other political systems, you would expect, not in first past the post two party systems, but in other political systems, Trump would have formed a new party, right?
2: I, I think that's right. I mean, the presidential system is very, very different from parliamentary systems. American politics has always been much more candidate-centered than it has been uh, party-centered, right? And that's partially because historically in presidential systems in the United States, uh, especially the party system has been fairly weak. That trend started to reverse in the 1990s and in the early 21st century, as parties became more and more homogenous ideologically, all the conservatives sorted themselves into the Republican Party, all the liberals sorted themselves into the Democratic Party. And so that homogeneity created the impression that you were getting a stronger party system. But it was really just a fact that you had a lot of harmony and consonants in terms of ideology. And now you have somebody like Trump, who doesn't is really neither fish nor fowl, and he's kind of brought politics uh, back to its roots in the United States in the sense that he is running a very much uh, candidate-centered campaign. And when you have a candidate-centered campaign, why bother to create a new political party apparatus uh, around you, right? It's just a lot of wasted effort.
0: So to take it on to Corbyn, and we'll talk more about Corbyn in future weeks, but I mean, Corbyn is also trying to take over a party. He's not a conventional candidate of the kind that this party has had really in its history. But because we're a two-party first-past-the-post system, he has to take over an established party. If we we're a proportional representation system, you can imagine Corbyn, Corbynites, Corbynism, being a party that captures 15-20% of the vote, and maybe forms part of a coalition government of the left. But he's had to do something closer to Trump, which is take over an established party. The question is, is it still the same party? Because the most striking thing from the exit polls for the election in which Corbyn won by 62% to 38% is that had the vote been simply people who are members of the Labour Party at the last general election which is only 15 months ago that would have been reversed and in fact I think Owen Smith would have won by an even greater margin it is the people who have joined since in huge numbers by any standards but does that not Helen make it a new party?
3: I think that it does and it doesn't I think the complicated thing about the Corbyn phenomenon is that it it fuses together something from the past and something from the post-2008 political world It fuses together the old Labour civil war and the party that essentially Tony Blair engaged in a coup against in turning it into the new Labour Party. And I say a coup because of the fact that in terms of the membership and in terms of much actually beyond the top echelons of the party, there wasn't a great deal, I think, of conversion to new Labour thinking, at least Blair's version of new Labour thinking. And one particular faction most unlikely faction in, in many ways of that old civil war have ended up with the leadership of the Labour Party. At the same time, there has been a shift to the left and a shift towards activism, grassroots activism that's come out of what's happened in the post-2008 world, in some sense the legacy of the Occupy movement. And these two things have been fused together. So in, in that sense, it, it is a new party, but I think it has historical origins in the division's of the Labour Party that go back to the the 1980s and the 1990s.
4: One way it's not a new party is that the 1990s Labour, as it were, has nowhere to go. The MPs, the, the activists in that category are not going to form a new party. They're not going to defect to the Liberal Dems. They're not going to drop out of politics, I think, in many cases, though some will. So in that case, you have a situation where Corbyn will be, as it were, trapped within a set of political actors over whom he has no authority Little control, little means of exerting his authority, but who continue to confine him within the space of a set of debates, a set of structures, a set of policies in some cases, which is inherited from from the past.
0: Finbar is sitting here shaking his head. <laughs> what did what did he not like about that? Finbar? Well,
1: uh, the the image of Corbyn being trapped um, because he is the leader of the Labour Party, and he keeps using the word, and his supporters keep using the word mandate, which I detest because it's not a mandate in that sense. He has won the leadership election again, and now he is trying to find a way to make himself relevant in the way he wishes to be relevant. That is not, it's not clear that that actually means trying to become prime minister. It feels more that he wants to be a principal person. And there's been lots of conversation about the difference and the disjuncture between principle and power right now within the British system. Do you, as Corbyn, stick to your principles and never get into power? Or do you say, actually, the only way we do something interesting is by trying to actually win the election and become prime minister? And the last couple of days in the Labour conference, watching Tom Watson and others, there is an attempt to say we have unity, but there is no unity. Tom Watson has basically said, all hail the tale of the Blair revolution, We won't deny it. It's still here. And Owen Smith and others have said, but we're all in this together. Let's have a hug. The Labour Party can't do this. And it's going to continue to have a massive fight over the next year, two years, three years. And if Theresa May calls an early election, which she says she isn't going to do, she could kill the Labour Party. So
0: we have two parties which may be led by people who aren't really trying uh, certainly not trying to do the thing that parties exist to do, which is to win e- elections. And that is what they exist to do. These are unprecedented times in our adult lives, I think. Uh, so we've got lots, lots, lots more to talk about. There are two more debates to come. Uh, I don't know if we're all going to stay up. <laughs> no, we've got some head shaking here. But we will try or we may read the transcript. Uh, I thought that Jeremy Corbyn, if if we'd had this conversation after the EU referendum, I would have said that Corbyn would not be leader of the Labour Party now. I'm now pretty sure he's going to be leader of the Labour Party for a lot of time that we're going to be discussing on this podcast, the state of British and democratic politics. So please join us again next week and in the weeks to come. If you enjoy this podcast, do subscribe. Please rate us on iTunes. Everyone says this at the end of podcasts now. It really makes a difference. We'd be very grateful. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My name is David Runciman, and this has been Talking Politics. What what esprit d'escalier (laughs) moment?
1: No no no. This is. I wish I'd said. Oh God! Damn it! I should have said I was standing (laughs) for (laughs) France.